Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Pugh, reporter at Fintech Futures. Joining me for this episode is Mary Ellen Iskanderian, CEO and President of Women's World Banking. We'll be talking financial inclusion, financial literacy, the importance of keeping it local, app islands, and how fintechs can help close the digital financial gap between the sexes. Welcome to the show, Mary Ellen. Would you like to give us a short intro about yourself, talk about your role at WWB and the sort of work that you're doing there? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Alex, and really excited to talk about fintechs because I think they are the latest iteration of a mission that the organization I lead, Women's World Banking, has been dedicated to for, gosh, 43 years now. We're, we've been around a long time. Always, that is with, It is, it is. Always with a focus on making sure that low-income women, primarily in the emerging markets, but we can talk about how we're changing that as well. But low-income women in those markets have access to the full range of financial services they, that they need, both for security and a, a safety net, but also to prosper. And as I say, fintechs are really have the potential to really revolutionize the provision of those services to low-income women. Not just survive, but thrive. I love it. Yes. Thank you. First up, our news and numbers segment. So this is our part of the podcast where we look at a, a news story with interesting numbers in it. Slight departure, we're going to look at the same story because it's got a few quite interesting statistics and figures in it. The story is one from our website, Fintech Innovation Challenge looks for fintechs focused on low income women's market. And for me, the figure that really stood out was the 742 million women worldwide that are still excluded from the formal financial sector. That's like three quarters of a billion women. That's quite a lot of women. Do you want to chat a little bit about that figure or another figure in the article? What drew you to this story in particular? Well, those 742 million women are the base that we are most eager to reach. As you note from the article, they are completely excluded from the formal financial system. Believe it or not, that number represents a big improvement. We saw a real leap in the last three years in terms of people around the world who have gained access to the formal financial system. A lot of that additional access was driven by government COVID relief payments, many of which were only made digitally. And it allowed facilitated and accelerated access to financial services and perhaps even more importantly, digital financial services. But there's still this tremendous gap between men and women who have that access. It's down, quote unquote, to a 6% gap from a very stubborn 9% gap. But we think that really hides some important numbers. First of all, we see countries throughout South Asia, a few of the Francophone African countries who have gender gaps upwards of 20%. We saw in India the articulated or the documented gender gap nearly close entirely but the reason behind that, if you do a little digging behind the numbers, has more to do with, frankly, men closing their bank accounts because they no longer 
saw a formal bank account as relevant to their lives than you did around opening accounts for women. And so nobody wants to close the gender gap by having men become more, more excluded. And I think that for me is the big challenge that faces all of us who are working in this space to now that we've got them, now that those women are included or more women are included, how do we continue to keep them in the system, provide them with safe, convenient, reliable, affordable financial services, and then also go after those 742 million who haven't been included at all, who we know are going to be the hardest to reach. They're going to be more rural. They're going to be more illiterate, most likely. You have countries where there are social and cultural norms that make it very difficult to say own a cell phone in the woman's own name and this owning the cell phone and digital financial services are really part of the same package now and access to that phone is key to access to financial services. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good news with the that 742, but it's still a big target that we're eager to get those women into the financial system without losing those that we've already brought in. Yeah, I mean, as you said, some progress has been made, but there's still some way to go. Um, When you mentioned those different regions of the world where the gap that has shrunk that could be partly explained by men closing accounts. Do you say India, a place where that's happening? or is it, it, that- India, Yeah, India is where it's probably was most notable for these purposes. The sort of gold standard database for issues of financial inclusion is called the Global Findex. It's funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's housed at the World Bank. They do it every three years. And the results aren't weighted in any way. And because India is such a populous country, made an enormous effort over the last decade to have universal digital ID, universal access to a sort of no-frills bank account. Whatever they do, whatever progress or regress that they make has a really important skewing effect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've done, it's not necessarily fintech, but in terms of voting, they make a huge effort as the world's largest democracy to make sure that everybody has access to a voting machine. It's all done electronically. And as you mentioned, their digital ID schemes and things like that, they've definitely made great strides, leapfrogged a lot of those obstacles that for such a vast country that has a lot of those last miles, like you're talking about rural populations, where that's often the hardest part to reach. They've made quite a lot of progress there. Exactly. They really have. And in fact, we were thrilled that the first round of COVID relief payments that India made just right at those early scary days back in March of 2020, they made their first relief payments payable only to women and only digitally. And so you saw like literally in a matter of weeks, you saw 25 million new bank accounts opened. That's a fascinating figure. Were they, were women, you said only women received the payments. Was that because they're the matriarchs of the household? They were the ones responsible for the finances or was there? Well, yes, but I, I also think the government was very clever in trying two things, trying to achieve its goal of getting more women financially included by, and they knew that this would be a powerful accelerator. But I think they also, there's a lot of research, much of it done in India that shows when you have a government to person payment that is deposited directly with the woman, not 
with just a head of household or the largest wage earner, but explicitly with the woman in the household. More people eat more nutritionally in that household. More people have access to health care. You see both girls and boys staying in school longer. The kinds of ways that those payments are used when women have control over them is very different and frankly benefits a broader swath of the household than if it's a, the man that's in control of them. And I think the government was doing a little social engineering there. <laughs> This is the part where we do an interview style section where we focus the discussion to a specific topic or sector. But I do want to start with kind of a top level, broad opener question. I mean, we did touch a little bit already on Women's World Banking, but if you had to give sort of an elevated pitch, why the organization exists, who it helps and, and what your role is as well in, in the organization. Sure. I, I always like to imagine that I'm in the elevator of a very tall building while I'm <laughs> yeah. giving an elevator pitch. Floor, but yeah. as I mentioned, we're dedicated to providing access and control of financial products and services to low-income women in developing countries. And we have, over the years, really become, I don't think this is immodest to say, we really are the experts. We are the go-to organization for research, marketing, product development, leadership and diversity training, both for financial service providers and executives, as well as for regulators. We sort of cover the waterfront in terms of all things needed to move the dial on women's financial inclusion, bringing more women into the financial system. Most recently, the role that I'm perhaps most excited about is about a decade ago, we became an impact investor. And so today, we have $150 million assets under management that we are deploying by taking stakes in financial service providers to make sure that they do serve more women and they do so with more diverse leadership teams and boards. And we have a number of very exciting fintech investments actually that we've made in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, yeah, I mean, money talks, right? And impact investing has been around for some time. It's a fairly effective way of making things happen. Yeah, the impact that we have, as you say, by bringing capital, very often if we're like the leader of a capital round, then we can bring all of the other investors that are coming in with us to advocate for those same goals. We always try to get a board seat and so play a very active role at the board level. So you're right, money does talk and it's really become a very impactful way for us to influence individual institutions. So you work with microfinance institutions to support female entrepreneurs across the world. Can you explain a little about what a microfinance institution is and what are the benefits to this strategy to getting the money to the right people? Sure, but it's actually, uh, our mission today really is significantly broader than working with microfinance institutions. I joined the organization as president and C CEO 16 years ago. And at that time, I'd say we were almost more like a membership organization for 
high-performing microfinance institutions throughout the developing world. If they needed training in a subject or if they wanted product design, they could call on us for that service. And then digital financial services hit. M-Pesa became a reality and very soon mobile money and digital financial services became the way that the costs had been reduced, the access had been expanded, and you really saw women and men being included through digital financial services. And almost like an explosion, that brought so many other kinds of organizations into or onto the playing field that saw this untapped market as a real opportunity. And so we adapted along with it. And in fact, today, fully, I'd say fully a third of the organizations that we work with in making financial services available to women are fintechs. We work with mainstream banks, some of them Pan-African banks that work right across the continent. Some of the largest banks in India and Indonesia are partners. We work with insurance companies, mobile network operators. We've got a couple of digital banks now, as well as our legacy microfinance institutions, all in service of getting, as I say, good, safe, convenient, affordable products into the into women's hands and the financial and digital literacy to understand how to use them and use them well. So yeah, different different institutions, different infrastructures for different needs. And yeah, I mean, they all have their advantages and uses, I imagine, depending on who or where the people are that you're trying to reach. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, we touched a little bit on it earlier, but it's maybe an obvious, one of those obvious questions, but why do you think hundreds of millions of women are around the world are excluded from the formal financial system? In what structural, cultural, economic obstacles are in place that prevent them from participating? And how do you go about trying to remove those obstacles? It's a great question. And it really does cover that whole waterfront of things that you alluded to. We like to think about it as kind of three types of barriers. They're the barriers that the woman directly experiences herself. Women tend to be both less literate in terms of letters and reading, so basic literacy, but also perhaps slightly less numerate and often very uncomfortable with the technology. And being really digitally literate is critical to being able to embrace financial services today. There are, I'm so glad you alluded to, cultural and social norms around women's control of financial resources, women's having access to property or property title to be able to use as collateral in order to borrow a loan. Many countries don't allow women to own land in their own names or inherit. So there are a whole range of these kinds of obstacles the woman herself faces. Then is probably the area that I understand least because it makes the least sense to me is the financial service providers themselves don't really believe there's a business case for serving this client base. And there's been an analysis by Oliver Wyman that the financial services industry as a whole, so banking, insurance, asset management, you name it, are leaving $700 billion in revenue on the table every year. It's an opportunity untouched, exactly, because they're not serving men and women at parity. We're not even talking about reaching out to this large, untapped, unserved market, but just reaching parity with men. 
and making that it is madness and making that business case i'd say is really what what i devote my time and energy and breath to doing and then the third set of barriers and this i'm very excited that we've made such real headway now is really more at the regulatory level and there are very concrete changes that governments and policymakers and regulators can make so that it unlocks some of these log jams for women. The vast majority of developing countries don't have credit bureaus, for example. And if they do, they only cover about 5% of the total population or very large loans. So they're not tracking repayment rates of smaller loans that a woman might be borrowing. And that's actually why it's so exciting for us to be engaged with fintechs, because the data that they are gathering through their various solutions, allowing them to create alternative credit scoring or make underwriting decisions based on other types of data, no longer relying on that central legacy. Yes, the credit, Mm -hmm. legacy credit reporting system. Exactly is very exciting. But we have seen more and more countries, particularly in the developing world, have made very aggressive, very exciting financial inclusion strategies. And they've recognized if they don't specifically address barriers that women face, they're never going to achieve those goals. And so a lot of our advocacy work and our training of regulators is to help them address some of those barriers. It is it is strange to think that when I mean, we're talking about nothing less really than unleashing the economic potential of half of the global population and why businesses aren't more keen. Obviously, many are coming round to the idea, but it is strange. The social norms that you just mentioned sounds quite knotty, quite messy. Things like that might take some time to change, but well, but. In terms of government and regulation, there are levers and buttons that they can pull and press that could change things overnight almost. Do you see, in terms of governments around the world, any that are really going like ham on this and really trying to push forward with that kind of thing? Well, I think there were many countries around the world that really did take a let's not let this crisis go to waste kind of approach. And you saw, for example, countries... Before the crisis, the pandemic crisis, you had something upwards of a 30% gender gap in mobile phone ownership in India. You saw mobile phones getting into women's hands at tremendously fast rates. You saw that gap close, particularly driven by this, you can't have access to the relief funds if you don't have that digital account. The GSMA, the Industry Association for the Mobile Phone Industry, does a a gender gap report every year, and they had shown that the global gap had dropped from, as I say, the the high 30s down to 16%. The bad news, though, is it looks like that that progress has stalled, and we've seen the gap increase a bit in the last two years to 18%. But I think when we talk to our colleagues at the GSMA, they're very concerned about the affordability of the handsets, still getting phones to a price that both both a man and a woman in a household can afford them. Data packages need to be more, more affordable. But they also, as we do as well, worry about once they've got that cell phone in their hands, is there a product base, a product suite that is relevant? to that woman. 
Well, that actually, that's one of my other questions, actually, because this was a terminology that I've not heard about before at islands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Women not necessarily maximizing the potential of their smartphone or internet-enabled device. You know, if you put a smartphone in a person's hand, that gives them a measure of independence that they may not have experienced before. But it's the app islands issue seems a bit like, seems a bit of a sticky problem. Can you explain a little bit what an app island is or what it means and what solutions do you have to solve it? You talked a little about lack of software or tailored software. Right. No, it's a great question. And I think it really speaks to, we see women in general feeling less comfortable, feeling less at home with technology. We see right around the world that as soon as that woman gets that phone in her hand, she goes right onto WhatsApp. And that might actually be as far as she ever gets. That's what we mean by the app island. She gets stranded with that one use and doesn't explore all of the other opportunity available through the internet. And that's why we've become really um, evangelical, I guess, about making sure that whenever a, a bank or a fintech or any financial service provider introduces a digital product, they include some literacy training, some training to that client base so that they are comfortable, they are confident. You've seen a growing number of providers recognize voice recognition as a really effective technique. And maybe it's a bridge to get the woman comfortable with the application through the voice technology and then migrate her to the device itself. So I think it's just really understanding where your client is and meeting her at that place because we're seeing women's uptake of digital services at or even higher than the levels of men's uptake once they have that confidence and that comfort with the technology. Yeah. I wonder if, if there are different behavioral nudges that apply differently to women than they do to men in terms of getting them to use different services, particularly financial services. But yeah, it's, I guess for a lot of people in emerging markets, you know, it's something we in the West take for granted, being able to type that kind of thing, just having some familiarity with computers and removing that friction, that barrier by using the voices. Yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're so right about the social behavioral nudges. We've been, I think, again, tooting our horn a bit. Women's World Banking has really been pioneers in what we refer to as women-centered design and really understanding sort of what are those pain points. One of the things that we hear over and over again, regardless of the region, regardless of the country, women are really keen to make sure that their financial transactions are confidential, particularly when it comes to savings. We've heard so many times around the world of a woman opens an account when she takes a loan for her business and the bank says, well, you have to have a savings account as well. She'll say, well, I'll do that, but my husband knows about that account. If you really want me to save in it, you have to let me open another account that he doesn't know about. <laughs> and one of the reasons why we're so bullish on, on digital financial services really is that heightened confidentiality and security that women feel comfortable with. I may be leaping here, but I imagine that for a woman, a savings account is almost like a life raft in case their relationship and the entanglement of their financial life with their spouse or husband 
goes wrong, they then have something that is truly their own and they want that to be separate from their financial life with their partner. No, that you're spot on. There is a, was a very famous study done on, uh, by a Kenyan bank on these kinds of behavioral nudges, and they were trying to get more men to save because they saw real disparities in men's and women's willingness to save and the amounts that they saved. And so they introduced a joint account and said there would be no account fees if you know a household opened a joint account. So lots of accounts were opened by men, but you then saw all the women either closing the account they already had and going elsewhere where they could keep their own or just not saving in that <laughs> joint account. So there's really that that very strong recognition by women of that, that safety net and that, keeping that safety net under their own control. You're absolutely right. So we mentioned a little bit of different ways that the organization works with different institutions. And obviously it's a global macro organization, but you work with local organizations and regional outfits. How important is that to keep it local for such a global organization? I think that whole dichotomy and almost dialectic between the global and the local is really the secret to our success. It's fascinating how much we hear from the organizations that we work with, the financial service providers around the world, that the reason they stay members, the reason they continue to work with us is they're they love being able to learn what has worked elsewhere, what hasn't worked to try to avoid other people's mistakes. So a big piece of what we do is taking learning from one part of the world or one part of a country and sharing it with others. I think one of the biggest changes in our organization over the last five years is moving all of our client-facing staff to the markets in which we're working. And I think it's made us far more responsive, far more nimble to change, especially during COVID as we were navigating different lockdowns, different local scenarios. We were really able to navigate much better than we would have if we were still in the, everybody flies from New York for a couple of weeks at a time to whatever country we're working on. So that's been a big shift in the way we work. And I think it's only brought really positive results, not to mention our carbon footprint. Yeah. So the digital financial gap between men and women and fintech, we were talking about fintechs before, and also sort of taking learnings from one part of the world or one region of a country and applying it elsewhere. How should the approaches of fintechs differ between economic regions? So, you know, APAC, MENA, the Americas, are there different approaches or is it fundamentally the same approach, but tailored to the local region, economically speaking? That's an interesting question. I think you're seeing very similar models in different regions. This idea of embedded finance, where a company will put its technology inside a company, manage their inventory, follow their inventory levels so that they can tailor the payments of a loan more closely to the company's operations. You're seeing those models very successful in Latin America and in Africa. I'd say from our own portfolio of investments, we're starting to see some really interesting models of insure tech throughout Southeast Asia. There are some, but perhaps not quite as many in Sub-Saharan Africa. 
one thing that we are seeing, unfortunately, seeing in a lot of places is that digital credit is still mostly a consumer credit story and a, an expensive and maybe even abusive story that there, we're still looking for that digital credit model that serves the micro, small, and medium-sized enterprise. And and they're emerging. It's just we the consumer market just was so ripe and so needing that faster turnaround of credit precisely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that exploded quite quickly, didn't it? So a lot of fintechs are addressing things like financial literacy in youth and there are fintechs that address financial inclusion for immigrants. And then we have wealth techs that are making wealth management accessible to the masses. So a lot of these initiatives are about broadening the market in a sense. Um, do you see how any of these initiatives overlap with the mission to close the gap between men and women? Are there any anything that we can learn from these initiatives? That whether it's for immigrants or young people or people who want to save for retirement, we can learn from them and apply those to addressing that gap between men and women. I'm so glad you asked that question because this kind of gets to one of my, I started to say pet peeve. I don't know if it had so much as just something that I'm really keeping a close eye on. I think it's very exciting and you need only look at the fact that we've over a hundred applicants to the Women's World Banking FinTech Innovation Challenge that are businesses that are directly addressing some of these gaps you refer to as well as looking to close the gender gap in financial services. I think there's a huge desire amongst FinTechs to fill a gap to serve those who are underserved. What worries me, frankly, though, is the people who are providing capital to those organizations, because it seems to me that while they may start out with really great intentions, by the time you're in a sort of Series C fundraising, capital raising landscape, you're all about scale. You have capital providers who really want to see certain levels of client reach, certain levels of burn footprint, burn rate, path to profitability. And that's all too often taking those original goals, more socially minded goals and putting them aside. And then they start saying, well, we'll come back to that after we've we've done our IPO or something. So I really would love to see the capital markets recognize you can build scale, maybe slower, maybe, or more slowly, maybe with a different kind of client, but we don't have to sacrifice those goals of inclusion just to get to scale and profitability for fintechs. So I I really encourage more of the capital providers to help these companies achieve their original aim rather than taking them off course. Yeah. Well, it's money again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's idealistic, but... Um, yeah. No, no, it's good, no, to, it's good to believe in stuff. We need it. We need more of it in this world, for sure. Um, okay, last last question before we go on to our fintech jail. Uh, this one's a <laughs> the WWB has said the Ukrainian refugee crisis, of which about 900 of them or women is a financial inclusion and resilient stress test. What fault lines has this stress test uncovered in your mind? 
Thank you very much for asking about it. it. It is research that we were very excited about being able to do. Ukraine is not a developing country, so it was a little bit outside of our bailiwick. But since 90% of the refugees were women and their dependents, we felt strongly that Women's World Banking needed to be there. We thought there might be lessons for policymakers and humanitarian agencies on the role that financial services can play in humanitarian response for displaced people. And indeed, we were. You had 80% of women were financially included in Ukraine prior to the war. So you had a very highly banked population. You had a highly literate and highly digital population of people to start with. And so we saw it as kind of a stress test. When that population is forcibly displaced, what works and what doesn't? The immediate experience of these women wasn't really great. A lot of them immediately took took cash out of the bank and then got over the border and found that their Ukrainian trivna wasn't exchangeable, or if it was, they were able to exchange the currency. It was at ruinous rates. At You saw there were so many interviews that we did. We, we talked to over 800 women through our surveys, just the number of women who were robbed either at the border or by households who took them in once they crossed the border and then lost their money. So that the immediate experience was a pretty scary one if for those women who took the money out of the bank and didn't rely on the digital. Those who did were able to access their accounts pretty pretty quickly once they crossed the border with a phone or with a card. What really made the difference though and is you know, a lesson that I do hope we all take on board when we think about how to help the resilience and recovery of other displaced people is the European Central Bank relaxed KYC, know, know your customer requirements, and allowed the women in the destination country to open bank accounts. If they were able to get jobs, they could immediately deposit their earnings into those accounts. We had women very upset that they would be in a shelter literally right next door to a Syrian refugee household that not have the same possibility. So there were accommodations made for the Ukrainians that I think we should really think about how do we make it possible for other displaced people to take similar advantage and to have the ability to open an account in a destination country that they can deposit into. Well, that's one of those levers that we were talking about earlier that, that governments and regulators exactly exactly situations. Yeah, thank. I, I meant ninety percent. I must that five must have been a percentage point, percentage symbol at some point. Thanks. Yeah, that's it's why when you said that a lot of the women who were leaving Ukraine took cash and some just relied on their digital banking or whatever. Did you get any research insight into why people women took out cash? just panic or they weren't sure whether they were going to be able to access their services elsewhere or they didn't have much of a digital banking framework in their home country? I think there's still this very deeply ingrained, I think there was also a very generational dynamic as well. Older women, and I say that guardedly because these were women younger than I am, but older women probably still carry around that cash is safer. I am safer with cash than this, this thing on my phone. We did, in fact, we did see some real 
differences in age groups that younger women were more obviously more facile with the technology, had better language skills or broader language skills, whereas older women may have been less digital, didn't have the broader language, didn't have the potential for going elsewhere once they'd crossed the border, going elsewhere within Europe. Let's move on to part three, Fintech Jail. Um, this, <laughs> this is where we ask for an overhyped, overused industry term, buzzword or, or trend that our guest has seen had enough of, wants to get shot of, and there are plenty of them, as we both know. Uh, however, there's also an alternative route for this part. The guest can spring a buzzword or phrase out of jail, which is what you've decided to do, Marilyn. Um, you're going to argue for the release of customer centricity. Can you tell us why? Yeah, why did you pick customer centricity and why does it deserve a second chance? <laughs> so it's so it is definitely a conditional release. I'll be very clear about that because it is a terrible buzzword and I think we're, it can be very overused. The reason why I am willing to give it a, another shot is along the lines of much of what we've already talked about. If fintechs really were customer-centric for those millions of un- and underserved customers, I think it could really unlock a whole line of business, a whole avenue to scale and to growth that they hadn't previously considered. So it's as much about who are they, what, who is the customer that they're centering on as in the use of that buzzword. But the great opportunity of fintech, I think it will be lost if all we do is make products faster, cheaper, cuter names for the population that's already included and not think about using that real horsepower to bring the un and underserved into the financial system. So it's, it's as much, if not more, about broadening that customer base than it is about maybe, because the level of personalization in financial services enabled by technologies is staggering. But you're talking more about creating more customers that are underserved, underbanked. I am, but I think it's also, again, we were talking about women-centered design. Think about what the experience of that woman is. So let's say she does have access to a smartphone, but as is not necessarily all that confident in using it. The way you design a product, the way you design the onboarding of that product would be very different if you were genuinely being customer-centric with that woman in mind. Great. Okay. Well, I think that's our time up. Thank you so much, Marilyn, for insightful and very interesting conversation. Really appreciate the time you've given us here. Before we sign off, have you got any socials or websites that you want to plug? So I will, of course, love listeners to to check out womensworldbanking.org. It's the, the website of the organization I lead, Women's World Banking. And the information about the 
FinTech Innovation Challenge, which will be held in Dubai in February. And the two finalists of our challenge will go on to compete in the final round at the Singapore FinTech Festival, thanks to our partner, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So there's lots of great stuff about FinTechs and how FinTechs are contributing to women's financial inclusion on that website. It's vital work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Pew Show and on LinkedIn by searching my name, Alex Pew. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and similarly on LinkedIn by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. If you liked this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever it is your favorite podcasting service may be. We would also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Thank you so much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.